Well, if you will, open your Bibles to Psalm 137. This is a challenging psalm, but I pray in the end it will also be a very comforting psalm. We will learn much from it. Psalm 137. I want to begin by reading it. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If my tongue, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's the end of the psalm. And that last part leaves a searing image in our brain, doesn't it? How... How could it really say, blessed shall he be who dashes the little ones, the babies, against the rock? That does not sit well with us. Actually, I find the entire psalm quite disturbing. For me, reading this psalm feels a bit like watching one of those movies which is accurate to human experience, but a part of human experience that we don't like to think much about, like war the devastation of war, or slavery, or terrorism, or any other form of human suffering. Those movies have a chilling effect on me, and after watching them, I feel like my emotions are all wrung out, and I'm not sure how I should feel afterwards. It seems absurd to go back to normal life, but then what else am I going to do? That's what this psalm makes me think and feel. But you see, for me, it only makes me think of the movies because I've lived a relatively sheltered life. For many people in the world, they grew up in a place in a certain time like Rwanda or Cambodia or Germany or Syria or Afghanistan or many other countries. This psalm, and many parts of this country too, this psalm would speak to their life. And it's actually written, I believe, in part to give voice to their experience. Now, that might be all well and good, you say, but but this response at the end, blessed shall he be who dashes their little ones against the rock. How is that in any sense a good godly response? Well, let me encourage you. Let's journey this psalm together. Let's see if we can't understand this psalmist and even agree with this psalmist when we get to the end. But let me warn you, this psalm is emotionally intense. Along the way, it might feel like our emotions are being wrung out. But we often must be broken before we can be healed. When I watch one of those intense, chilling movies, I'm always a bit distrusting of my emotions afterwards. Movies like real life can have powerful effects on us, and that effect is not always good. But this psalm is different because it is God's word, and therefore we can trust it. 
It might be a painful emotional experience for us, but it is the pain of a surgeon who only cuts to heal. Let's pray before we continue. Lord, help us. Help us. Lord, we are a broken people, and we live amongst broken people. And perhaps some of us feel more exposed after reading this psalm. Perhaps for some of us, it brings back searing memories of things that actually happened to us. Lord, help. Comfort, we pray. We come to your word with faith, believing that it is true. We pray that you would open our eyes to new understandings of your word and of your truth. Heal our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our will. And cause everything in us to be conformed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's work through this psalm together. Verse number one. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Now, to understand this psalm, you have to know why, you know, you have to know what Zion is and why he is not there. Zion is a hill in Jerusalem. It came to be identified with God's city, and Zion was particularly personified as God's presence. Mountains in the Bible symbolize man's connection with God. The reason, I think, is that mountains kind of stand apart from the surrounding area. It could have a a sacred feel to them. The Garden of Eden was on a mountain. When God told Moses to take the people out of Israel, he said, then you will worship me on this mountain. Sinai was a mountain. Zion was a mountain. God meets with people on mountains. The other symbolic reference in this passage is the city of Jerusalem. It points out the fact that God is calling not just isolated individuals to himself. He is calling a people, a city. He's bringing a group of people to himself for his glory. And he's calling them together where they may find rest and help and love, and joy, and fellowship, and and fun. But it's very clear from verse 1 that our psalmist is not in Jerusalem, is he? He's not anywhere near Zion. He's in Babylon. And why is that? Well, it's because God's people had not obeyed God, so God raised up the nation of Babylon to execute judgment upon the people of God and take them far away from their own land. The people were literally cast out of God's presence. And this was catastrophic for them. If you want a modern comparison, think of the maybe the refugee crisis that we see unfolding before our eyes on the television screens, and then just multiply that by a factor of 10. Because the land meant, as God's presence, it meant so much more to them, and because there was absolutely no one to help, no Red Cross, no UN, nothing. And the way Babylon did this is they went about picking off some of the smaller cities, pillaging and murdering, and then they laid siege to Jerusalem. They succeeded in starving them out. You can read about it at the end of 2 Kings. The prophets say that during this time, women and children were dying in the streets. Meanwhile, the young men had been almost all killed in battle. The young women had been horribly abused. And when the Babylonian military made their way into the city, they utterly destroyed it. They dismantled the temple. They took anything worthwhile. And what was left over, they burned. Jerusalem is, as this passage says, taken down to its foundations. And the Bible uses an apt metaphor to describe exile. It talks about it as being stripped, being laid naked and bare, utterly put to shame. 
You see, the land that they lived in was their honor, their covering. It was what gave them a sense of peace, rest, shalom, the Bible calls it. The people of God living in the place of God under the rule of God is how things were supposed to be. But the people didn't want to be under God's rule, and that blew everything apart. The relatively few people that the Babylonians did not kill were forced to march 600 miles from their homeland to Babylon. Talk about a trail of tears. The goal in this was pretty much to wipe out their identity. Today we would call it genocide. And then to add insult to injury, the exiles were forced to live amongst the people that had committed such atrocities against them. Forced to live amongst the people who had raped and murdered their family members, who dashed their own infants against the rocks. Friends, how would you feel? I think we can understand why the psalmist sat down and wept when he remembered his homeland. And just to be clear, he's not weeping over simply the loss of his house, his gardens, or the loss of his family, as painful as that was. He's weeping over the loss of place where he would meet with God. Now that their homeland was gone, everything that shaped their identity as a people belonging to God was also gone. And the opening scene here in verse 1 paints a vivid picture of contrast. Verse 1 says that they are by the river, and that's an indication that it's, it's pleasant. Uh, you needed back then a, a river, a, a source of water, or you would die. Mental note, silence all cell phones, right? That's a cue there. Kidding. It's fine. We'll, we'll get through it. No worries. Um, the, uh, you needed a river or you would die. You needed a source of life or you would die. The rivers were places where life could flourish. And quite possibly, this is either the Tigris or Euphrates River. And if you look at a, a map like Google Earth, you'll see that along the Tigris and Euphrates River, there's green amongst a whole lot of really brown area. It's a source of life in the desert. It's the only place where trees could grow. We see in verse 3, there's a willow tree there. The point is, they're in a good place. This is an idyllic scene. This is, this is where you want to live. I happen to live a couple years of my life right along the Tigris River, actually. And even you know, when I was there a few years ago, you could see people going down to the river with their musical instruments. And that's where they would go and play and sing and dance and have a merry time. The river provided refuge and rest There, it felt like everything was supposed to be. It was supposed to be. But for the people of Israel, everything was most decidedly not how things were supposed to be. Their land had been stripped from them, and they would not find rest in this place. And verse 3 tells us that their captives want them to play joyful songs about Zion. Perhaps the captors are mocking them at this point. Or perhaps the captors just want to amuse themselves with the Jewish music. But the people can't sing those songs. And they ask the question, how can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? See the tension there? Oh, how do you sing a song? The songs of the Lord are about God meeting with the people in the land. And yet they are not in the land. Psalm 48 is an example of one of these songs. It says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, listen, in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. 
See the connection there in that passage between uh, the city of God and God's presence? They are now no longer in possession of the city, nor are they near the mountain. So how are they going to sing songs about God? That's what they feel. And this stirs up lots of complicated emotions. And I think this psalm is written to communicate those emotions. So first of all, this psalm recognizes the very real need that in times of distress to sing songs. I mean, that's, that's what we feel, don't we? Songs help us when we're sad. And Psalm 137 is actually a song that you can sing in a foreign land. It's a song of grief, a song of distress. But uh, this is where it gets complicated. That loss and grief is mixed with joy. And we could even say it is spurred on with joy. Let me explain. Look there at verse 6. See where he says, let me be cursed if I do not place Jerusalem above my highest joy. Notice he's talking there in the present tense. Jerusalem is his highest joy, right? It's his highest joy even when he's far from it. And even when it's kind of not there anymore. It's been destroyed. This is a complicated emotional experience. He weeps over Jerusalem, over the loss of place where he would meet with God, and over what has been done to God's people there, even as he takes joy in Jerusalem. What this really shows here is remarkable faith. The only reason he can continue rejoicing in Jerusalem is he believes in God's promise. God has said that after 70 years of being in captivity, he would bring the people back into the land. And you've got to realize, this would seem preposterous in that moment. First of all, there aren't very many survivors left. Second of all, they are a three-month journey from their homeland, which has been destroyed. And finally, they have not a friend in the world. Humanly speaking, it seems no more likely that they're ever going to live in Jerusalem again than they would live on the moon. But then, humanly speaking, what were the odds that the people of God would have made it out of Egypt when Pharaoh, the strongest person in the world at that time, wanted them all dead? Or what were the odds that they would survive Goliath? And so on and so forth. Psalmist knows who God is. He believes in God, and therefore he believes that God will make a way for them to come back into the land. He looks forward to that and rejoices in that future reality as if it's now. It comes down to this. The psalmist here believes that God's covenant relationship with his people is stronger than the cruel forces that oppose them. It's stronger even than their own sin. And this gives him a very present sense of joy. And so he weeps and rejoices at the same time. Friends, I wonder if you've considered that that's actually the state of the Christian life, more or less. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks about how we are, listen to this, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Joy and sorrow at the same time. The Christian life is not one where we walk around simply in a state of pure joy, always happy, always smiling, always singing happy songs. No, friends, that would discount the very real losses and crosses that we all must bear. And it would discount the fact that we sin against God, and that creates a horrible sense of loss, loss both with fellowship with God and with others. Recognizing this, the Apostle James, the brother of the Lord, instructs us, Be miserable, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 
You see, it's not appropriate for Christians to walk along their whole Christian life with a glib sense of joy. There are times when we should be very, very sad. But at the same time, God is still our greatest joy even as we weep. So our mourning does not lead to despair. It leads to hope. It leads to joy. It is the joy in God that leads to mourning, and it is the mourning that leads us back to the joy in God. It's worth noting here, especially if we're struggling to figure how this works out, that the whole orientation of the psalmist's emotions are quite a bit different than we often think of it. It's very easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that the biggest drama in the universe is simply the story of our lives. And our emotions are then entirely keyed to what's going on in us and right in front of us at the moment. And then we fall into the trap. And then a friend of mine puts it this way. He says, when life stinks, your perspective shrinks. We have a tendency to reduce the size of our life, the size of life, down to the size of our lives, our current experience. But this psalm expands our horizons. It presents a way of living in which our emotions are not keyed to our our up and downs in the moment, but they're keyed to God's story. And we have joy and sadness as appropriate based on what's going on in God's story. Now, what's the key to having this perspective? Well, according to the psalm, it is the discipline of remembering. Remembering. Several times in this psalm, we see the idea of remembering. I weep when I remember Zion. He says, may I never forget. May I always remember. Remembering here is a sustained focus on keeping in the forefront of our minds that which is most important. We want to keep what's there most important. We want to remember what is most important. If we don't remember God, we are then cut off from our identity in Him. And we become plastic people who mold ourselves to whatever the situation is. And we take our emotional cues entirely from the situation. Think about it. If our psalmist here didn't remember of God, one of two things could have happened. He could have simply just rejoiced in the trees and the river and played his musical instrument and figured, oh well, and gotten joy from whatever he could then and there. Or he could have fallen into ultimate despair because he had no hope. Both of those would have been wrong reactions. And friends, in the midst of trying times, don't we waffle between both of those? On the one hand, we can take joy in superficial things like you know, binging on movies or uh, eating a, hoarding M&Ms or something like that. And then a second later, we fall into just complete despair. The Bible presents a radically different alternative. It's called remembering. Remembering our identity in Christ and grounding ourselves in his story. Alongside this idea of remembering, I wonder what you think of verse 6, where he curses himself if he does not set Jerusalem above his highest joy. In other words, he's saying, if I forget who I am and find my happiness in these superficial things, if I do that, he says, may I lose the ability to praise anything else. And one early church pastor talked about, or Augustine, talked about this in terms of rightly ordering our loves. And he says this is actually the main task of Christian discipleship. It is, you know, it's very rare for something that we love to be genuinely wrong in and of itself, right? Most of the things that we love actually have some value. We should love them. 
but it's very common for us to love them in the wrong order. We love them either too much or too little. Now, I think this is a foreign concept for many of us because we see our emotions as things that are just happening to us, right? I just feel this way. I couldn't help it. I just wanted to do this so much. The Bible doesn't buy that. The Bible assumes that we have control over, our, over the direction and intensity of our emotions. We control them by remembering, by setting ourselves in the story of God, remembering that story. You know it's true in one sense. Because when you feel emotions, don't they always attach themselves to a story? You feel despair and you think, you know, there's always, these bad things always happen to me. You're telling yourself a story. You, you feel hopeless and you say, my life is going nowhere. Again, notice the story. Nobody loves me and then you're lonely. It's a story that you attach your emotions to. So change your emotions by changing your story. Change your story by remembering God's truth. Situating yourself in his story. Now, friends, this is not going to be easy. It looks like war. And we see the psalmist engaging in war right here. He says there, may I be cursed if I do not keep Jerusalem above my highest joy. That's a serious prayer there. I wonder if you've ever considered praying something similar. So, for instance, Perhaps you find that your joy in your possessions, your house, your car, your clothes, whatever, is greater than your joy in God. Would you consider praying, Oh Lord, may I lose the ability to enjoy anything else if I do not put my greatest joy in you? Or maybe your joy in your family is set above your joy in God. See, it's often thought things, you know, we're not loving things that are wrong, we're just loving them in the wrong order. Your, your family is set above your, your God. Would you pray? Lord, may my family be a source of pain, and may I fight and quarrel with them if I do not love you more than them? Or, or maybe your love for your friends gets in the way of God. Could you say, Lord, may I be left all alone if I do not love you more than these? Or maybe it's your job. Could you pray, Lord, may I lose my skills and my knowledge if I love my work more than you? Friends, I wonder if you think of those prayers as dangerous prayers. I don't want to pray that because I might lose something I really enjoy. Well, friends, but doesn't that in and of itself betray that you've already set something above God? And Jesus tells us that if our eye causes us to sin, it is better to pluck it out than to send our whole bodies to hell. Let's start by plucking out our wrong desires and ordering them rightly. Part of remembering God's story is not only looking back to what he has done, but it is also looking in the future what God will do. We see this clearly in the last verses. Verse 8, O daughter of Zion, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. These are difficult verses. But I think we know the psalmist well enough now to know that he's not seeking personal revenge. He's not like the character in The, the Princess Bride, what's his name, who, who says, you've killed my father, prepare to die. You've seen that movie? No. It's not like that. It's not like that, first of all, because the psalmist is not trying to take personal revenge. He's not planning to do anything. And if we think about it, if we 
realize what he's lived through and who he's living amongst, that is indeed remarkable. Could you live amongst the people who did that to your own children and not do anything? I would find it very difficult. But we also know that this psalmist isn't seeking above all to satisfy himself with revenge because he is quite willing to sabotage his own happiness if that happiness is not ultimately placed in God. This psalm is not about revenge. It's about ordering our emotions rightly in light of the fact that things are not the way they are supposed to be, but God is still on the move. And part of ordering our Part of that ordering things rightly that God will do is that he will inflict proportional retribution upon those who have acted cruelly and wickedly in the world. In other words, God will bring about justice. If he doesn't bring about justice, he's not really God. Now, I suspect that some of you, though, still might be struggling with the idea that God is going to establish justice by inflicting violence. I'll go out on a little limb here and say that quite possibly, if you're thinking that way, you haven't experienced much violence yourself. And you probably don't really know what raw evil is. C.S. Lewis said that this psalm is here so that we will know that there is such a thing as wickedness and that God hates it. And we can go a little bit further than that and say, and we will also know that God is going to judge it. Justice operates under the assumption that there are certain actions that are inherently blameworthy and the people who commit those actions need to be blamed where there is something out of whack with the universe. And God makes things right by inflicting just retribution. To help us understand this, listen to something from a Croatian theologian named Volf. He he knows firsthand the violence in the Balkans. He knows about the 8,000 men and boys who were taken into the woods and shot in mass graves. Those images are seared on his mind. And let me read to you what he says about God and violence. I've, I've paraphrased this ever so slightly, so it will read a little bit better. He writes, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not want to make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. For the only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate when it comes from God and that he will repay all evil. I know my thesis, he writes, will be unpopular with many in the suburban West. But in a sun-scorched, blood-soaked land, the Western liberal idea of a nonviolent God will invariably die. I think he's right. But at the end of the day, it is not the offenses committed against other humans that most requires God to judge. It's actually the offenses committed against God. The Bible teaches us that crimes against humans are ultimately crimes against God because humans are made in God's image. So the Judean babies that were dashed to pieces against the rocks is God's image dashed to pieces against the rocks. The Syrian child that we've seen in the news who was washed up on the shore is God's image washed up on the shore. The thousands of little ones who are torn apart in the womb of all places is God's image torn apart in the womb. And that's a horrific offense against God, and he hates it. 
Furthermore, because we are made in the image of God, we are made for God's honor. We are made to worship Him, to enjoy Him, to trust Him and obey Him. And yet, individually and collectively, we have all chosen not to do that. Essentially, we want to be God. We want to take His place. Essentially, we want Him dead. That's a horrible offense against Him. We said that every crime against humanity puts something out of whack in the universe. Well, the crime against God pulls the cosmos apart entirely. Creation itself groans, the Bible says. If God did not make things right, then by punishing sin, He would not be worthy of our worship because it would show that He doesn't care about His honor and glory any more than we sinners do. Well, but He does, and He will judge. Let me just read you a few verses here that speak of God's judgment, and then we'll conclude. Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with the flames of fire. For by fire the Lord will enter into judgment, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. And then the book of Isaiah concludes, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm will not die, the fire will not be quenched. In Matthew 25, verse 41, this is the words of Jesus. He will say to those on his left, they're the wicked ones, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Second Corinthians, or Second Thessalonians, rather, chapter 1, verse 6, what Isaac read earlier. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflicted you. That's basically Psalm 137, isn't it? And then it says, Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might. And then in the book of Revelation, chapter 18 is where we read about the final destruction of Babylon. Here is where God finally repays with affliction those who afflicted God's people. And then we read in Revelation 19, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God, for His judgments are true and just. Revelation 19 goes on to speak about Jesus. It says His eyes are like a flame of fire. And it goes on to say He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, for He will rule them with a rod of iron. And then Revelation 20. We read about Jesus sitting on a white, great white throne. And the earth and the sky flee from his presence. And the dead, and small and great, are raised. And the dead are judged according to what they have done. And it says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible calls that the second death. Friends, these verses are chilling, aren't they? But... It's clear from the context of all of them that they are actually intended to be a source of comfort for believers. Take heart. God will judge. Why then do we not always feel that comfort? Well, friends, I think the reason is we know deep down inside that we actually deserve judgment. We know that when God separates the good and the evil, if you were to look at all our actions, we would fall on the side of evil. 
Now, we may not have dashed any infants against rocks, but we mock God. We all do, except for one, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was born a man. He trusted God completely, and then he was crushed. The Bible says he was crushed for our iniquities. The guilt of the entire world went upon him, and it crushed him. God crushed him. The horrible punishment that this psalmist here is crying out to God to inflict upon the Babylonians was inflicted upon one more Judean child, and that is Christ. He was crushed that all those who trust in him will not suffer God's wrath, but receive the reward that the Son deserves. That is to enter into the world where everything is set right, where God's people live in God's place under God's rule, and everything is as it ought to be. That's why Revelation 20 and 21 can talk about the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And it has a stream running through it. And it, it uh, is a source of great joy. The people of God will know intimacy with God far, far greater than they did in the old Jerusalem, in the old Zion. That's ultimately why this psalmist can have hope. And that's why you and I can have hope even in the darkest trials, darkest nights, if we put our faith and trust in him. Let's pray.